Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Josias Podcast. We have this time a guest with us, the illustrious jurist Pedro. We'll be talking about rights, Thomas on rights, the Enlightenment on rights. We'll talk a little bit about law. We may even get to Carlism in here. Uh, before we start, though, a few procedural notes. We have an email address. If you would like to compliment the great host or complain about the terrible co-host, you can write to hhg.josias.rex at gmail.com. That's hhg.josias.rex at gmail.com. Also, we have mounting costs as we pay for the extremely fancy equipment and uh, hosting services to keep the website and podcast running. If you'd like to support us, you can now at our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Josias. Uh, we'll have links to both these things in the description. And now let's get started. Hello, guys. How are you? Hi, Joel. Morning. Hey. It's great to so, hear your voice finally, Pedro. No, uh, well, I had heard yours before, but uh, thank you. <laughs> so, so, Joel, tell us about the the intro music that you played for us this week. Well, this is uh, Enrique Granados is uh, one of his goyescas. It's the El Palele, which is uh, I'm certain I'm mispronouncing all these things, but it's usually programmed with uh, his music, his piano suite, uh, based on. Goya's paintings. And this one is a painting of Goya's, an early painting, I'm pretty sure, uh, that's really quite lovely. It's of, I guess, a game they play in Spain where they toss a straw mannequin up and down on a sheet. And he painted this for Charles IV, I believe. And I, I've heard that he uh, was subtly mocking Charles IV in this painting. Later, of course, he would not so subtly mock him. Uh, and it just seemed appropriate, given that we have this international jurist who's studied in on three continents, I believe, uh, and uh, can tell us a little bit about Spain as well. Pedro, uh, on that note, why don't you introduce yourself? What, uh, say a little bit about your background and uh, sure. uh, so forth. Sure. Um, just a, sort of a... a, a, a um, a little commentary on that painting. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think it's that subtle. Uh, I think it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty clear. Uh, el pelele, el pelele means sort of the the dunce, or <laughs> you know, someone who is uh, easily pushed over and, and, and is very bright. And I think that was kind of the general the general view of Charles the Fourth. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, so yeah, Goya is is not pulling any punches. Um, my name is Pedro. Uh, I'm from Quito, Ecuador, and um, uh, I don't live there anymore. Uh, but I, I live in Mexico City, and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lawyer. I studied law in uh, in Spain and in the U.S. Um, and um, sort of, I have a I, I, I practice law in a, in a law firm, <laughs> and uh, on my free time, uh, whenever I have it, I I, I like to dabble in in uh, the philosophy of law and, and these kinds of things. Um, that's basically it. Well, we're so glad to have you on today. And our topic, I guess, is rights. And there are sort of uh, a lot of confusion around rights. And so I sort of, I thought we might start by thinking about 
the Enlightenment view of rights, which really, in a sense, ends up replacing the classical view of politics, where everything is referenced towards the good and towards happiness. Instead, in the Enlightenment, you get, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you you end up getting more of a sense of uh, everybody has autonomous rights. So, Pedro, can you say is this is this the sense of right that that classically gets used, or do you have a a, a take on this? Right. So, um, I think yeah, more uh, what you said sort of captures the, the problem, right? Um, the the modern notion of rights um, comes basically from uh, the seventeenth century, um, maybe a little earlier, late sixteenth century, um, and for for most of us who who uh, who are sort of the, the the denizens of the liberal order? This uh, basically traces back to the work of of Thomas Hobbes and Spinoza, and and Locke especially, um, and they basically promote uh, a totally new, revamped understanding of natural law, which which which, as you said, replaces the previous one. Um, to put it briefly, I think the, the main distinction or the main difference is that now uh, in Locke and in Hobbes, right is understood basically as a power, uh, as uh, the power to do something or to have something or to manipulate something. Um, and law is opposed to that as the rule that limits that power. So the construction right. of, 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 of sort of the legal order is basically a kind of dialectic between these two principles. Um, you know, how can we make sure that we have the most amount of power um, for each individual? Uh, and, and that's sort of the criterion for how we design the law. The law is a kind of offense. You know, these metaphors are, are common in these thinkers and, and, and in their sort of uh, followers uh, is, a, is a kind of offense, is a kind of a, of a guardian and arbiter that uh, whose function is only to to tell us where your power should end so that another's can begin. But ultimately the purpose is not to protect another's rights. Ultimately the purpose is so, so that you can enjoy as much power as you, as, as, as possible. Right. Um, and that's sort of a natural way of thinking for us today. We always think in, or at least as an American, certainly uh, I can say this, I think for Americans, it's very natural to think in terms of, uh, yourself as this autonomous person who's somehow limited by other people and you only allow them to limit you to a certain extent. And the struggle is everyone trying to keep everyone else from infringing on their rights. Everyone is protecting their own autonomous sphere of rights. Uh, and the, the idea of power here is of a moral power, right? It's uh, right. a power in the sense of um, something that, uh, you ought to be allowed to do right, right, and I mean, it understood rightly, this 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 notion of right is not wrong. Uh, I mean, in itself, um, but uh, for it to be uh, correctly understood, it has to be placed in in the context of 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 the classical meaning of right, which is which is of which is a, it is a derivation, um, and which is which it has come to to replace. So you know, this, was, this really excited me about the piece that you did for us at the Josias, 
because really for the first time I, I saw clearly the connection um, between the classical notion of right as the object of justice and this modern notion of right as subjective power. Right. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, I'm glad you say that, Father, because uh, after after you guys put up the, that piece, I, I, I reread it and I thought, wow, this is really dense. I, I, it might not be very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, maybe it requires, you know, each point requires some explication, but um, yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you liked it. So let's say a little bit about that then. Um, right is either subjective power or right is the object of justice uh where uh those seem like at a first glance they're contradictory but maybe we could talk first about a little bit more about what we mean what what, what is meant by a subjective power right um okay so uh in the in the in the tradition of the jurists and the people who are commenting on on this from the point of view of of, of the science of jurisprudence I would say a subjective power is basically um, sort of a sphere of action that the law grants a person uh, in respect of their rights. So, for example, this is kind of, an, I think, an, a non-controversial understanding of, of this, right? So, for example, if I own my computer, I have the power to use it without being obstructed. I have the power to modify it. I have the power to sell it. Uh, so um, I have the power even to destroy it um, uh, legally, right? So, so the subjective power is, is, is as you if, you, if you will, the 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 bundle of things or of or of or of ac- spheres of or, or of actions that I uh, can perform in respect of something uh, over which I have a right. And so, in in a sense, you also have a right to those powers, uh, but 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 it's a derivative kind of right. Okay, that's interesting. So um, this is the new. This is the sort. This is develops in the jurists, and then the Enlightenment guys really run with it and use it to replace uh, thinking about the good, right? Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. well, you get uh, in in the jurists, you have uh, a priority of right as the object of justice, objective right, as we can say, mm-hmm. and then the subjective right is derived from that. Whereas exactly. the Enlightenment thinkers make the subjective right the primary thing. It's the first reality here, as it were, from which the others, from which other things then are derived in the legal order. Right. And I, I mean, I guess you could say the sort of the, 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 the theoretical point that explains this shift. I mean, you could split, you, I think you can, you can trace it historically. Um, there's a lot of literature, for example, about how this notion of right really comes from the work of, of the late scholastics, Francisco Suarez, etc., uh, and how he uh, influenced people like Grotius and Hobbes and Locke. But um, theoretically, I think that the change comes because these thinkers no longer accept the good as, 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 as sort of the final cause, right? And, and, and they posit a new end, uh, which they don't really explain, but they just sort of put it there, which is the end of sort of uh, self-preservation or, or even the fear of a violent death, these kinds of things. And, and, and that's where uh, the idea of right as a power sort of starts to make sense, right? Because if, if the only objective or the only end, the only licit end 
or even the only conceivable end is not to die or to, to keep myself from dying, then you could say, well, uh, you know, the end ordains the means. So that means basically my right is 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 to do anything I can to to not die or not to be killed. Yeah, you have that very very strongly in Hobbes, especially yeah. uh, even stronger than in Locke. In Locke, he, he sort of smuggles in more um, of happiness as the end. But in Hobbes, it's very clear that the good is not a perfection of uh, the as it were the completion of being. The, it's perfection, but the good is simply um, continuing in being. I mean, he doesn't use the word good, but the end for which everything is striving is just to continue in being. And that's, I mean, you have the same thing in, in Spinoza's ethics as well. There's this idea of, uh, whereas for the tradition of perennial philosophy, being simply uh, is not the same as good simply. Good simply is perfection. Um, and being simply is just good in a certain respect. For Hobbes, uh, it's not. You're just trying to conserve being. So it's kind so, of, is this right for the perennial view then, that uh, you could sort of think of it as good is being in a certain respect because it's uh, the perfection of a nature, so it's, it's second act, and uh, being is good in a certain respect because it's not, in fact, a perfection, but it is in a certain sense of a perfection. Right. So if you just have a person existing, you can say they're good in a certain respect, meaning they're good to the extent that they exist. Even the devil is good in a certain respect because he's an existing spiritual substance. Um, but if you say about some person, he's good, without any qualification, you just say he's good, he's a good person, then you mean that he has an accidental perfection. He has virtue. Right, which is being in a certain respect. Right. Uh, but for the modern guys, they really put first nature as more important than second nature. It, they're not thinking about perfection. They're thinking about potency being the uh, more important thing. Is that correct? Um, right. I think that's right. Um, um, and this, I mean, this, this, this kind of explains also sort of the abandonment of the notion of the common good, right? Because, um, if, if, if the first nature, if, if it is what matters, then in a sense that first nature is, is, uh, is, uh, is a complete whole. Um, it's uh, existence is about the, is about sort of the, the development or the, the 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 space where that that first nature can can be whatever it wants. Uh, there there no longer is any need for us to say that that our our good requires others or 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 that we are parts of a of a whole. Okay, that's maybe we can use some more examples from the Enlightenment before we sort of go on and contrast that with. Uh, trying to see if there's a different view of rights. So uh, both of them uh, think that both society, who? both Hobbes and Locke, I'm sorry, uh, to, to me they're kind of, uh, particularly for uh, the Anglosphere, they're the sort of epitome of uh, rights uh, sort of language, because 
we're very uh, insular and uh, provincial here. And if, if it's not in English, I'm not sure we really care. Uh, <laughs> but Hobbes and Locke were in English. So they, uh, they talk about how life is really about commodious living. So, and they think they can get that by having everyone uh, pursue their own pleasure. Now, maybe we would quibble and say, oh, pleasure, what we really mean is good. Uh, but even granting that, to play the devil's advocate, isn't the best way to get to the good, to have everyone mind their own business? Isn't that very Socratic? Well, well I think it follows from, from, I mean, from making uh, rights the primary consideration, that is subjective rights, the subjective power that uh, what you're going to think the, the legal order is directed to is um, going to be liberty because the more liberty there is, the more amplitude you have for the subjective power, the more, uh, the more space the law gives to your um, right to do whatever it is that you want to do. Um, but to think that that is, in fact, the best way of achieving the common good uh, seems a, a strange notion. Well, so is liberty there? What's the what's the conception of liberty there? Um, I think I think I think the, the most useful um, uh, case study for this is is Locke, right? Because he is he's he's as 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 as, as uh, Potter sort of uh, uh, hinted before, he he's more ingenious than Hobbes, right? He. He he basically has the same doctrine as Hobbes, but it's 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 covered over with this with the this um, talk about about the need for the law and and happiness and whatnot. But I think it's it's better it's better to study him to see how we get this notion of rights, because of course anyone who reads Hobbes is 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 going to be repelled by him because basically he's saying we're <laughs> going to kill ourselves unless we have you know, an all powerful tyrant uh, over us. Um, so Locke says. So, so Locke says um, a little bit of the same thing about as, as Hobbes about the, the state of nature, right? So he says, primordially, men. Uh, so, t so talking about only about this first nature, as as as, as we talked about before, have uh, therefore the right to 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 survive, uh, or to, to 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 all the things necessary for survival. Um, and he says, well, in a, but. As opposed to Hobbes, who says there is no law in the state of nature, he says, "Well, there is a law, and the law is to make yourself to or to or to survive, to, to preserve yourself. That is, that is the law, and that's where the right comes from. Uh, and so, therefore, there's also a law that you should make sure other people can can also preserve their being. Uh, so this is kind of the natural law in the state of in the state of nature, which, according to Locke, is not really a state of war. It's kind of a state of, of, of sort of primitive harmony." But he says, uh, this law also gives me the right to protect my rights from others. Uh, and so I can punish other people if they try to infringe upon my rights, what he calls the executive power, right? The power to punish. Um, and he says, therefore, it is necessary for someone to take the executive power and sort of become an arbiter between, between those of us who, who, who want to just survive and live. Uh, and that's what the Commonwealth is. Um, but Throughout all this discussion, the purpose of, of persons is, as you said, not just to survive, but to live commodiously, uh, to live as best as they can. Um, and so in the end, it's all a very sort of elaborate 
plan to ensure a kind of state of, of hedonism where uh, the state is the guarantor of your right to seek your, your pleasure. Um, and so that's why I think it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of a perverse, well, not kind of a perverse, I think a deeply perverse uh, sort of undoing of the words uh, of the notions of right and law um, to the point where it's, it's basically, you know, impossible or almost impossible to link it to anything that was said about those things by, by previous thinkers. Right. And, and the main instrument, of course, for, for living commodiously is private property. Right. Um, which is in big griff of a private good. It's not a common good. And so the reason why you need to have a powerful executive uh, is to protect private property. Why would you give up your rights? Locke says, um, if in the state of nature, you know, you have such a great amplitude of rights, it's because um, if you don't give up your rights, then people are just going to take your stuff. So you need to have a strong government that will protect all your private property. So it's it's really through Locke that we get. I mean, I, I'm I'm not I'm not a huge fan of Leo Strauss, but I think one of his great uh, one of his great <clears throat> merits was to sort of unpack Locke very well for us in, in these terms to say, well, really, Locke is a kind of is a kind of um, you know elegant or or or, or, or um, nice looking Hobbes. It's basically the same thing. Yeah, and I do think that's right. That does seem right. Um, I guess where I was going is saying you sometimes hear nowadays uh, people, particularly Catholics, particularly American Catholics, who try to sort of rejigger Locke by inserting happiness and maybe a little bit more of the good where he says pleasure, where he's pretty clearly ultimately a hedonist, but they still think of the way of doing this uh, as laws just being instrumental. They still think we'll have the common good be instrumental and then everyone will be virtuous on their own time. Potter, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is that the, the good, the attainment of which is our happiness, is not a, a private good. It's a common good. Uh, going back to the first episode of this podcast, in other words, it's a good that not only can, uh, cannot be attained without others, but uh, is um, in itself communicable to many in such a way that, uh, in fact, it's not ordered to me as an individual, but I am ordered to it as being a part of the community that shares in it. So this is really the fundamental, one of the fundamental differences then is that the ancients really think of citizens as being parts of a whole in some way, uh, whereas we think of autonomous people coming together and consenting in some limited way to give up some zone of autonomy uh, for the better pursuit of private goods. Right. And even if you're trying to think about happiness, if you're still conceiving it as a private good, you're going to end up with, as far as I can tell, pretty much the same mistakes, maybe a slightly more benign version, maybe more perverse in some way because it's it's less obviously wrong. Well, um, you might think that virtue 
is where the true good of man is found. But you conceive of it then in a similar way to the way that Locke conceives of private property. That is, you're considering virtue as a kind of private good. Right, right. Um, and also, I mean, if, if, you, if, you, if you follow the, the line of thought uh, to its conclusion, um, as so many people have pointed out, basically it's, it's nihilism in the end, right? Because the reason one is bound or, or the reason there is an obligation to, to, to others' people's rights is on account of the end. Right for, for that, which uh, that those rights uh, sort of uh, seek or are ordered to, but if the ends are uh, either unknowable or as many as as there are people, as many ends as there are people, then basically what that means is that there is no reason to to to, to there is no basis for obligation uh, anymore, uh, and so what you need is just just power uh, to preserve order. Right. This is why um, the evolution over time tends toward Kantianism, right? Because then you're grounding exactly. uh, rights in general in the sort of dignity of persons. Uh, the person is this sort of mystical atom of worth or infinite, infinite dignity uh, that, that can't, can't be questioned. Um, so you don't, you don't need to fall back onto raw power or pure self-interest in order to justify the system you've got this sort of abstract uh, moral principle about about personhood <laughs> yes uh <Excellent. laughs> so maybe we can go now uh <laughs> getting a little uncomfortable here maybe we can, <laughs> maybe we can now go to object of right right as the object of justice so this is the 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 mistake that people sometimes make here is they see that the modern talk of rights is problematic. And then they just want to say, well, let's let's throw out right altogether. But objective right is actually something that Thomas Aquinas discusses in the uh, Secunde. Uh, so, yes, let's move to there. Pedro, do, do you want to just sort of lay it out for us? Um, all right. Well, I, as best I can. Um, so... Um, this is why I think sort of a preliminary note is that is, is, is regards to language, right? Because uh, as we've noted, this the whole theory of rights that we we work with today is based on a subversion of the meaning of these word of the word right and of the word law. Um, so I mean, for us who study law, you know, today, you know, even the way we say it, we study law, right? In English, you say you study right. law. In Spanish, you say you could say I study right, estudio derecho. Or sometimes it's also say I study law, estudio leyes, right? Um, and this yeah, is a confusion. Uh, it doesn't right. right, exactly. This is actually it's kind of a, a weakness that English has, I think, in this in this in this respect. Although uh, it has many excellences in other in other areas, uh, but in this it's very weak because it it, it sort of the word law is uh, is um, so polysemic and has it, it sort of tries to cover the whole you know sphere of the juridical. In a way that obscures what what it's really about. Um, right. So the the the, base, the fun, what I would say is um, the foundation of, of 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 the juridical order is the notion of use, the notion of right, um, and this is you know basically understood as the object of the virtue of justice. Um, and in his discussion of justice, uh, Saint Thomas uh, you know starts out by defending the definition of justice that was given by the Roman jurists, right? Um, 
he says it's a, it's a good definition. And, 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 and the definition that they give is that justice is uh, the perpetual and constant uh, will to give to others what is their due. Uh, their right. due being their right, the use. Um, so this is sort of the the first and, and primordial meaning of, of right, that which is owed to another. Um, and this comes uh, from, in Latin at least, comes from, from the Roman jurists, um, where basically use is whatever is to be given to someone. Uh, the paradigmatic case, as I said in the in the piece that I wrote for for the Josias, is, is 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 property or ownership, where my right is simply the thing that is mine, right? So if I own a lamp, it's not that I have rights to a lamp; is that the lamp is my right. It is what is right. what should be given to me, right? Um, it's not that I have a claim on the on the on the lamp. I I have the lamp. Um, right. right, and this is very different, incidentally. Uh... At least in the Anglo sphere, the study of law, really, it's not at all how we think of rights anymore. But yeah. keep going, keep going. Um, well, I want to add a little footnote to that as well, yeah. um, because the, the Saint Thomas says the reason why it's the good of another, that is. Uh, the object of justice is not the lamp that I own. It's the lamp that some other guy owns or that I should give to some other guy because he paid me for it. Um, the reason for that is because justice is the virtue that perfects the will, as you have in that jurist's definition, the perpetual will. And the will, uh, by nature, it uh, wills, the goods that are most immediate to me, the ones that are closest to myself, I don't have to uh, be rectified by a virtue to want uh, my own lamp, but I do have to be rectified by virtue to want Pedro's lamp for to, for Pedro. That is. <laughs> <laughs> right, um, and so sort of sort of building on this it's it's very i think very 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 illustrative and very very illuminating for for a student of law to study the roman law the romans uh system of law because it it builds on this very it, it's it's a, it's a it's a it's an excellent um example of how this understanding of law works in practice right so for example um uh, the the roman system of law is not based on rights uh, as understood in terms of, um, as, as we've explained before, in terms of uh, the powers that I have over things and, and, and whatnot, but is based on um, on actions, cause, or what in English I guess you would call a cause of action or a right of action. Um, basically, it's the right to sue for something, for, for my right, right, when, when I'm deprived of it. That's, that's the basis of the Roman system. And so it shows uh, that what 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 the jurists really care about is determining what things belong to whom and under what respect right because there are various types of right there's a ownership which is a right over the whole thing but there's you know usufruct or uh, or use or 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 renting something or you know a whole, a whole host of things that that give you uh, the thing but only under certain respect um, or you have a right to someone's action Right uh, to someone, you have a in a, in a sense you have a right over that person when they owe you something. 
but only under a certain respect, right? And this this is sort of what the Roman jurists uh, sort of spend their time doing. Um, and uh, one of the one of the one of the things that makes it very very illuminating for me is 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 the case of property, right? So the basis of property is 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 what they call the action of revindication. Revindication, uh, revindicatio, right? The vindication of the thing um, is the action or the, the 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 lawsuit, right? That I have to claim what uh, my, my my property. And when the judge uh, gives me my thing back from you know someone who took it. Uh, who, or who is not permitting me to to you to possess it? Um, it's always a determination that is uh, sort of conditional and relative, because there's always someone else who might have a better right than I do. Um, so the point is, it's not really about discerning what powers you have, but about discerning um, who owes you what under what conditions, um, and. Uh, this sort of whole system of of of, of, of duties uh, that you could say that, that that the jurists are discerning um, around the various types of of, uh, of of rights is is also called the use uh, the order of right, uh, if you will, um, which is a, 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 the 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 Roman the Roman law professor that I had always insisted on this. He said, well, it's 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 a scientific uh, understanding of of right in, in the sense that it's not just about sort of conflict between my right and your right or things like that, but really it's about going into what is this thing, where did it come from, and all these kinds of categories and, and, and topics that are used to, to determine uh, you know, when something should be given to someone, under what respect, and, and for what time, and, and whatnot. So what yeah. is the... The great thing about this is that the, the, the role of law here is in a way the opposite to the rule of law, the way we discussed it uh, in the Enlightenment idea of, of subjective right as the primary thing. It, it, so in the Enlightenment conception, the role of law um, is to, to limit rights, uh, but to limit them, as it were, as little as possible, so that there's the greatest uh, amplitude of subjective power possible. But here, if you if you look at objective rights as what is um, primary, then the role of law, which law being an ordinance of reason uh, for the common good, is going to be to distribute the rights, that is the, the things, the objects, the objective rights, to distribute them with a view to the common good. So that... Uh, one way of, as I mean, as Pedro was saying, there are different ways of, of looking at a thing and seeing, um, you know, where does it come from and so on, whose who's, uh, right it is, who ought it to be given to um, in justice. But one of the, the measures here will be the law, which will distribute these rights um, with a view to attaining not just the private good of individuals, but with a view to attaining the common good of the whole community. So maybe right. here we can talk about uh, the basis of rights. And this is something you hear a lot about today, but I think it also has uh, a place in the ancient system. You hear about uh, natural rights and you hear about positive rights. Can mm -hmm. we talk about where is it that, uh, uh, we've already touched on it, but can we be a little uh, more direct on yeah. What grounds rights? Where, where do they come from, ultimately? 
Right. So um, it's 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 more or less what Potter was already saying, right? So um, the, the the role of the jurist in the, in discerning someone's right, uh, someone's use, is to look at what um, is to look at is to ask exactly that. What 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 is the basis? Or, or where does this? Uh, where can I find the, the 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 support for this claim that this person is making over this thing? And very generally speaking, we could say the basis of rights is what we could call the distribution of things uh, in the world. Um, because the only reason I can have a right to something is because I was given it, or uh, beforehand, or uh, someone gave it to me. Um, that's why really the only one who has total untrammeled absolute, uh, rights who are based, uh, on nothing but himself is God, right? Because he doesn't receive anything from anyone. Um, but for the rest of us, uh, we have to find a basis in the distribution of things for, for our rights. Um, and that's what we would call the law, right? The law is the one that tells us how things are distributed. Um, and, and there are basically two ways to look or two sort of um, two sort of areas of inquiry where we can discern the law. One is nature and the other is uh, the ordinances of the human will. Right. Um, and sort of abstracting from the divine, the divine law. Right. For, for a moment. Um, but it's the same there. Um, and so that's where the distinction between natural law and natural uh, and positive law comes from and the distinction between natural rights and, and positive rights. Um, and so um, uh, what the jurist will do is uh, will say, okay, well, let's look at the distributions of things. Is there something in the natural law or in human laws that, that bases your, your claim? Um, and, and if there is, then I have to figure out, well, what is the extent of that of, of or what, what is the extent of, 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 of that basis, right? So do you have a right uh, to the whole thing? Do you have a right to a part of it? Do you have a right for it only on, under certain conditions or for a certain time? And this right. sort of the discernment of these conditions and these limitations is what the object of jurisprudence as a science. Uh, Pedro, I have a, a question. So um, the, could you give me a, give us a concrete example of uh, how someone would dis discern whether uh a particular right belong to a particular person under sure. uh, the natural law. Uh, what what would what would that look like? Sure. Um, so what what's really I think helpful about this understanding of of the task of the jurist is that in fact this is what we do today as lawyers also although although it's so obscured by 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 the jargon of modern uh, uh, you know legal theory that it's difficult to see but this is actually what we're doing right so for example if i if i bring a claim against uh, uh for someone uh for you know you owe me so so much uh, this amount, amount of money because you you damaged me or whatever what i'm okay. doing in basing um, my claim is first i have to know what the facts are and then i have to know uh how these facts uh map onto what the law says about 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 uh, about the distribution of things. So, for example, if I have an investment in you know in your country, and uh, suddenly a group a mob comes from uh, a neighboring town and destroys my investment, uh, which I you know I paid for and uh, I expected to get a return from, 
um, then the law should say, okay, well, is this, for example, is this is this the, the landowner's obligation to protect me from mobs or not? Well, I have to go and see what the law says. The law says, uh, for example, um, the investor will have a right to be, or the, the investor will be uh, protected uh, from from uh, attacks by mobs to the extent that they happen during the day. If they happen during the night, then that's force majeure, right? And so there you have a distribution of things. It's telling you when mm-hmm. certain things should be given to whom and under what conditions. That's what, uh, and the task of the lawyer is to explain that to the tribunal in the most persuasive way possible. Now, in term, in ca- right. case of the natural law, it's really the same thing. It, it's just that we don't know nature as lawyers today, right? But <laughs> we don't know how to read nature, right? We don't know what to, what it means to read nature. But the Roman jurists did. This is why the Roman, uh, I think it's Celsius, who said. Um, jurisprudence is really the art of everything, the art of all good good things and, uh, and all right things, because we have to know nature in order to be good jurists. Yeah. Um, so for example, the right of the right of, of, of the pater familias, for example, is a right that comes directly from the from nature. Uh, I don't have to look at you know, in the case of Rome, that you know the lex cornelia on the family. No, I, I just look at what the what is the what is the what is the distribution of things. Uh, and, and the proportion of that of 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 one thing to the other in nature. So the father mm-hmm. has a right over his child because nature establishes an, a, a, a sort of equality or a sort of proportion between the two. Uh, that tells me, you know, for example, if the kid kicks his dad, then you know there's a breaking of that equality, and the jurist should be able to tell you, well, you have a right to to to, to amend that or and or, or whatever. Right. 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 Yeah, yeah. So it's it's interesting to think about how um, how the ability to discern natural law, natural right, can be obscured. Like, what what factors would would prevent people from knowing nature, as you said? Well, I think, and how are those parallel to factors that would you know prevent you from easily knowing uh, what the law is, the positive law, in a particular case? Right. So basically, the problem, the, the, the what makes it impossible for a jurist today to discern the natural law meaningfully, I think, is that he has a warped concept of nature. Right? He doesn't understand the notion of a, of the final cause. Uh, only if you know what things, what the end of things is, can you determine um, uh, what rights uh, can be discerned from 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 that thing and its and its ordination to, towards the end. So, for example, in the case of the father and the son, if I only see the father and the son, as as you said, as these kind of mystical atoms of of imputation, where I just sort of give them rights uh, or, or 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 make up rights for them uh, out of out of out of whole cloth, then it's very difficult for me to say, well, what is the natural proportion between these two uh, these two uh, the claimant and the respondent in this case, right? The father and the son, so, whoever it is. Right? And I think that's really true mm-hmm. because you see. And I'm not a historian here, so uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't seem to me that right is really that controversial of a thing. It's something that's studied and very developed, but there's not a controversy about use the way in modern philosophy and in modern jurisprudence, in fact, rights is not an uncontroversial term. Some people think there are absolutely natural rights. And then other people, Jeremy Bentham, for instance, described the idea of uh, natural rights. I think he was talking about natural rights here as nonsense on stilts. 
He certainly yes. had no use for it. He, uh, yes. And the reason, I think, is because once you get rid of final cause and you have people just being autonomous little atoms, uh, what mm-hmm. would a natural right even look like? It really exactly. is comes back to Hobbes's force. It's might makes right. So right really, yeah. if might makes right, then right is a more or less meaningless term in terms of nature. It's only positive rights that you can really think of. Yeah, I want to bring up another example uh, that's a, a direct example of what you were asking for, Elliot, but also shows mm-hmm. sort of a disagreement about uh, natural rights coming from an ignorance of nature. Um, namely, the disagreement between Cardinal Frings, the Archbishop of Cologne, um, and German jurists uh, after the war. So Frings... Frings is famous for giving his name to a verb in, in German, Fringsen. And what Fringsen means is um, stealing stuff if you need it to survive. <laughs> <laughs> so you had these people, it was cold winter right after the war, and people were didn't have anything. They didn't have fuel. Uh, they didn't have food either. Uh, but mostly the, the controversy about Fringsen mostly focused on fuel. And Cardinal Frings said, look, there's a, a universal destination of goods, meaning the external things of this world are given to all of mankind um, for the sake of sustaining human life. And the distribution of that is meant to, the distribution of goods is meant to, uh, is not meant to, to detract from that, but rather to ensure it better. Um, and also to ensure various other goods. But if you are in, so following the doctrine of St. Thomas, if you are in real need, if you're going to die, if you don't steal some coal from the railroad or whatever, then uh, then you can do it. It's right. It's not, uh, you're not um, sinning. It's not really stealing in the, the strict sense if you take the coal. This is Cardinal Frings's position. Um, but of course, German positivist jurists say, no, that's not right. Rights come from the law, and the law says, don't take coal from the railroad companies. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, I mean, this kind of illustrates also why it's really wrong to think of natural law and positive law as these kind of two distinct orders. Because in that, mm. in that case, you know, the, the German jurists have a point. The, the law does say stealing is wrong. But if you limit the, the the ambit of what law of what of what the word law means, then you get positivism. But if you say, okay, the law includes you know the, the criminal code of Germany and the natural law, and there has to be a way of of of, of making them work together, which is that what the the, the the job of the jurist is, then there should be no reason for us to say, for example, in this case, that the natural law is trumping the positive law. It, it's not. It, it's just the proper order of the, of the of the various sources of law working in that particular case. Excellent. Yeah, that's really interesting, yeah. particularly because in uh, uh, jurisprudence has tended towards it hasn't stopped at the Enlightenment, uh, as far as I can tell. Almost all the uh, philosophy of law today is one form of positivism or another. Uh, it's yeah. all, and particularly the Germans are, are very uh, thoroughgoing positivists. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in fact, our, the Austrian constitution, that is the constitution of the Second Austrian Republic, which is what uh, I'm living in at the moment, 
Uh, it was written by Hans Kelsen, who's one of the big... Yeah, he's huge. Grun Norm and all that, right? Yeah, Google <laughs> of populism today, yeah. What was that? He's like, he's kind of the guru of of uh, sort of the Jedi master of all the the the, 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 <laughs> the legal philosophy. Yes. I mean, if you don't know Carlson, you don't really know anything about about law today. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, his constitution, the Austrian constitution, is also uh, no one cares about the American constitution in terms of uh, international, you know, setting up new democracies places. It's almost all modeled on. Yeah. <laughs> So I I don't know anything about this or or Kelsen or so uh, t- tell me something about you, you know what's distinctive about the Austrian Republic and you know how does it exemplify modern positivist legal theory or whatever? Well, if people have made it this far, they they only can. <laughs> I mean, uh, this is actually interesting to me. Well, no, so, I can tell you what, what I can tell you about is, is this. Um, so P- Kelsen says that the law is is basically a pyramid with various levels, right? So the, the top level mm-hmm. is the constitution, and then you go down to, you know, statutes and then sort of uh, administrative regulations and then, you know, the the... The, the little the little memo that the ministry of whatever sends to its employees you know all of these things are connected by a kind of hierarchy to the top which is where the constitution is um, um and and the constitution sort of is kind of like a it, it gives validity to everything under it so insofar as something is, is contrary to the constitution it's it's out of that pyramid and loses validity um, but the problem okay. of course of this theory is well where does the constitution's validity come from and he says he makes up this thing called the the, the Grun norm or, or the basic norm or the foundational norm, which is a kind of um, it's basically like a, a like saying the constitution is is valid because we say so. That's basically the, the, the point. Yeah, sort of common will. Yes, it, type thing where is sovereignty of the people or something like that. Exactly. Right. You, can, you can you can you can substitute whatever you want in there for for a kind of basis yeah. for the Grun norm. And then the very first uh, article of the Constitution is um, Österreich ist ein demokratische Republik. Ihr Recht geht vom Volk aus. So Austria is a democratic republic. Her Recht, her uh, which is again it means really right, but it, yeah. we would translate it in English as law, yeah. uh, proceeds from the people. That is, the people right. is the right. source so, of it. So what what Kelsen had to do to to sort of ensure this this worked in in, in practice was he he made up uh, an or an, an, an institution called the Constitutional Tribunal or the Constitutional Court, which is a kind of second Supreme Court whose function is only to guarantee that that laws and regulations are in accord with the Constitution, uh, and it's kind of the guardian of his system. And so a lot of countries have copied uh-huh. this system. Uh, and they have these kind of the Supreme Court for ordinary sort of disputes and then constitutional court for disputes that involve saying that the, this law is, is unconstitutional. Right. And they, uh, interesting. Uh, not to get too into the weeds, but uh, the other big thing that this causes is the the uh, philosophers now all try to connect Wittgenstein on rules with uh, oh yeah, law because they have nowhere else to go really. Once you've gotten rid of nature entirely, <laughs> you, you've got to yeah. explain. You you know, and, and they'll talk about like, well, people don't wear their hats in church. That's like a, a norm. <laughs> and maybe if you had some muscle behind that norm, maybe we can get law out of this. 
but I don't. No, seriously. I mean, I, I, yeah, I remember one of my yeah. seminars in, in graduate school was this professor talking about the rules of monopoly and how <laughs> we can analyze the game, you know, to, to gain some insight about what law is. It was, it's very silly. The uh, the competing philosophy is uh, is even sillier and and talks about things like uh, uh, group novels and soap operas where you have people <laughs> writing a story and then other people come and write the next chapter and uh, how you can have continuity between them. But I don't want to get too far into the weeds of this. Uh, so one thing that came up earlier that I, I would like to touch on. Uh, is the church. So we, we, we brought it up because we started talking about dignity. Uh, and then we brought it up again because uh, Potter Edmund decided to talk about that cardinal. How does the church <laughs> in the modern church use rights and dignity? Where does it, where does it come from? Is it, is it more or less what we've been talking about? Uh, the old use of use? It doesn't seem to be. Um, yeah. one, one, sorry to, uh, one, so one thing that's convenient about the church and, you know, magisterial teaching is that, um, it doesn't generally have an explicit philosophical framework right. behind it. Right. So it doesn't, it doesn't always particularly matter where the church as a, as a teaching <laughs> authority gets it, it's, uh, sort of dictates on rights and human dignity and, you know, property and so on. Um, you know, that's up to the theologians and philosophers to to work out, right? Because uh, the the sort of province of the church is the the, the contents of divine revelation, um, and then you know, fitting them into uh, what we can know by reason and nature uh, is a, is a sort of a distinct exercise. Maybe maybe that's terribly wrong. No, I think I, I think know. you're right. Um... But, but it is, I think it is important, at least in one respect, to have a coherent philosophy of law for the church, uh, which, is, which is the practice of the canonists and the ecclesiastical tribunals, right? Because as, as we saw before, you know, whatever your philosophy of law is will, will, will in many cases color the way you, you conceive of the law and apply it in cases, right? Um, Right. Um, but I think I think I think that the canon law of the church, um, and you know, even even it, it's it's self understanding, you know, the divine constitution of the church and and the, and the divine law, these things are. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are a number of canonists who are positivists or who have been infected by, you know, positive tendencies, positivist tendencies. Yeah. But uh, as, I mean, for, for for I don't know how to say this, but I I think there is something in the very nature of what the church is that sort of repels positivism. I mean, I it's, it's right. very difficult. It's very difficult to be a coherent positivist and still, you know, practice the, you know, canon law. We should it's, say it's right, even more difficult. Canon law deals with moral right. norms explicitly. Right. 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 So you, you can't just, you know, there, there are inherent natural claims built in. We, we should say exactly. even more difficult to be a coherent positivist. Yes. <laughs> uh, okay. So, we're we're getting towards the end of our uh, time for this one, but I, I did want to talk a little bit more. In uh, Thomas, he sort of extends use so that you can talk about use not just being 
the object of justice, but also as an order. So you have different systems and we've already sort of talked about that. So use naturale, use civile, use gentium. Uh, and you can also use it as the name of a science. And we've also touched on that. Uh, Pedro, would you go very briefly into where the second scholastics further extend yeah. the term by analogy? Right. So, um, as you said, the basic uh, three meanings that Thomas sort of outlines are uh, use as the object of right, of uh, justice, use as the order of rights, and then use as as, as the science of, of, of right, uh, jurisprudence. Right. Um, and then uh, we have two more sort of meanings that I think historically developed in the, in the, in the second scholastics um, that kind of explain where we are today, right? Uh, although I wouldn't put it you know, I don't think it's their fault. It's it's just that uh, it it, it's, it 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 fills in the gap historically. Uh, the first one is um, Francisco de Vitoria, I think, uh, uh, who who says, well, also the law can also be understood as use, uh, as right, um, because the law is, as we explained before, the the title uh, by uh, or or rather the 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 what manifests what what the, the you know the content of rights and where they are and what they come from. So it, it's proper to say that right that law is 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 a kind of right, uh, and this is where we start getting the confusion of, of legalism, where we say law means you know the legal system or the legal order or the juridical order rather right. Um, when in fact Saint Thomas had considered this uh, in in the Sumayan, and he said, well, really law isn't a type of justice, uh, a type of use. It is the ratio juris, right? It's 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 the it's the the reason of 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 right. It's what what gives you uh, the the tools to to know what right is, but it's not the same right. thing. Um, and then the the fifth one is is the one the that that we talked about before, which is right as a power, right? Which is more 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 developed by by people like Suarez, right? Um, and he says, well, and I think this is this is actually right. Uh, it makes sense, which is to say. Um, if I have, if this lamp is my right because I own it, then that must mean that I have, I have, uh, you know, the moral right or the moral space to do things, uh, in respect of this lamp, which other people can't do, right? Which is, is, makes total sense. And he says, well, the jurists have spent hundreds and thousands of years trying to discern what those kinds of things that I can do with the lamp are. You know, can I can I can I turn it on? Can I turn it off? Can I move it to another house? Can I sell it? Can I hit someone with it? Etc. Right? Um, and he says, well, those things are also rights. They are your right because they 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 come from uh, your fundamental right over the land. And that's a coherent, I think, theory of rights. It makes sense. Um, uh, it's a refinement, but it makes sense. Um, but you know what happens is that you know people like Grotius and and Hobbes say, well. That's the only meaning of right that I'm going to accept because I think liberty is the basis of, of uh, order or, you know, survival is, is the highest end and et cetera, et cetera. So that's where we end up having, there is a sense in which right can mean a power or a faculty. And as long as you yeah, have okay. it clear uh, that there's an analogical sort of order here and you have it clear what yep. the fundamental sense is, you can use it that way and you won't get into trouble. But once you divorce it from final cause and once you get rid of it as a notion of an object of justice, that's where you end up uh, going off into Never Never Land, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think the, the point that Pedro just made about uh, 
Lex law as being the ratio juris, the reason for the right, um, is really crucial there because um, you see there that the law is, is the object of prudence. We, Joel and I were talking about this before the, the show, um, meaning law is an enactment of reason and the perfection of reason is the virtue of, of prudence. Uh, and in the case of law, it's um, regnative prudence, which is uh, yes. ordered to the common good. So you have an understanding, a rational understanding of what the common good is. And that is the foundation of uh, law, which will then give you the ratio juris, will then show you what whose right is. So everything will finally go back to an understanding of the good. Uh, whereas if you I... say that the primary thing is subjective power, then everything will just go back to will, what people happen to want. Yeah, right. This is also why I think it's, 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 it makes sense to distinguish the science of jurisprudence from the science of legislation. Right, because the science of jurisprudence is concerned with the object of of justice, uh, which is a virtue uh, of the will, right? And the science of legislation is the science of that ratio juris of knowing uh, the common good and and directing actions towards that common good, which is which is different from from the work of the jurist. Well, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Elliot, how are we doing on time? I think we're about out. Uh, yeah, we're about out. Um, this is, yeah, I, I had uh, one, one, oh, sorry, before we end one last, uh, question or thought. So, um, I don't, I know very little about legal history or anything, but the sort of modern ten- tendency is to codify, uh, bodies of law into, uh, sort of systems that you, where you can just look up a, a, a given, um, uh, I don't even know what they're called, uh, precept or whatever. Um, as opposed to my understanding is that, you know, centuries ago, there weren't these, uh, simple, uh, codifications or systems. You had to find decrees and determine what, what preceded, uh, a different decree and by what authority and so on. If that's assuming that what I just described is true, uh, is correct. Um, is there a way in which uh, the, the codification of law um, kind of uh, reduces the sense of rival authorities within uh, the act of, uh, I guess, judging a case or, yeah. or doing jurisprudence. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Like, um, you know, if you think of there's this whole uh, multitude of, of laws out there, uh, individual decrees, I should say, and I'm searching through them perpetually, trying to find, you know, the one that that best determines, uh, you know, what is right in this case. Versus, I flip open, you know, the U.S. Code, and I look at title whatever and section whatever, and find specifically, you know, the case history on this section. Right. Um, and it it dictates what I should do. Um, yeah, I think that you're, 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 I think you're right. Um, so, uh, I think the codification, uh, phenomenon is related to, um, the idea of the state as the, as the only exclusive source of, of power and, and right and, and, and order, right? So, so the, the traditional jurists or the Roman jurists or the medieval jurists, 
what they would do is to say, okay, well, I live in a world where there is a juridical order that is composed of several uh, sources, that has several sources. One is nature, another is the divine law, another is you know the church canon law, another is the ordinance of the king, another is the ordinance of the bishop, another is the ordinance of the Lord, uh, another, you know, all these kinds of sources for law. And my work is to know them. Right. And when I get when I'm given a case, I have to discern which which laws uh, I'm going to look at uh, for 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 uh, you know for either supporting my client's claim or you know judging rightly in this case. Um, and so you recognize a, a various a various a various uh, you know a, a big spectrum of authorities that have different scopes and different um, spheres. And as a jurist, you have to know how to, you know, work them together, you know, which one trumps which in which case, et cetera. In, in the codification phenomenon, what you have is the state saying, we're going to end this craziness of, of uh, or what, what, you know, what the Enlightenment thinkers considered this craziness of, of, of competing authorities. Nobody knows where, it, where you know, where right. one ends, where the other begins. And so we're just going to lay it all out. We're going to take all the, all, the, all, the, all the wisdom of the jurists from centuries, and we're going to just put it in this code. Um, and uh, that's all you're going to need. And it really gets going, uh, not just in the Enlightenment, is where it starts with the idea of competing authority that makes them uncomfortable, but then the positivists go super nuts with it. And if it's not written down, you know, oh, right, they, they, don't, even, they don't even consider it. And I was struck, just, right. just the final point I'll make, I was struck when I was reading Before Church and State, how he gives so yeah. many examples yeah. of they, yeah. they come up and they say, oh, these peasants took two bushels of wood from the baron's forest and they've done it for years. And the baron's claiming a right that they can only take one. Oh, we'll give them two because that's what they've been doing. And the, that goes to the good. This would drive right. modern uh, jurists and the, and the legal positives insane. They'd, they'd be saying, where, where is this? This isn't even the king's right. We don't even have one authority. And on top of it, it's not even anything written. It's just what these people are. We need to have this written down somewhere so that we can point. Uh, yeah, that, actually, I was just going to bring that up. Uh, I really recommend everyone who listens to this podcast to read chapter seven of Before Church yes. and State by Andrew Willard. Yeah. Because that chapter is, is about exactly what um, we've been talking about, and especially what Pedro was just talking about, uh, for the pre-codification I was just looking at it. In fact, the Andrew Willard Jones, he puts a quote from Augustine at the beginning of each chapter. At the beginning of chapter seven, that's about the juridical order. He puts this quote from the city of God, 19.4. Finally, there is justice. Its task is to see that to each is given what belongs to each. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. I mean, and and, and the, the point is uh, that I think he makes really well is this is why it doesn't make sense to think of the church order versus the state order versus the order of, you know, uh, the Lord or whatever. They're all the same order, just different sources with different spheres of right. action and, and scope. Right. And it's really, it's great. It's a great book because it, it expands the imagination. It really allows you to sort of concretize some of these things that otherwise yeah. you, you have trouble picturing today because it's just not the way things work anymore. So that is all the time. So if you don't want to say the Roman law, then you can read yeah. that. <laughs> uh, well, no, and I was going to say, we didn't at all get to Carlism, which was one of the main reasons I chose uh, uh, the song, because uh, I was yeah. kind of hoping we would get to Carlism, but what we'll have to do is have you back on for that. Thank you so much, right. Pedro. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. 
It's a pleasure.